Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. Welcome to the LexRex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Trusha, the lead writer for the LexRex Institute. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, president of the LexRex Institute and a constitutional attorney, although I will not be speaking in that capacity today. Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the LexRex Institute. The LexRex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about us or make a donation, please visit our website, lexrex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X dot org. As a reminder, and we'll talk more about this later today, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. But today, more issues than ever before are considered political, and we believe, therefore, it's Yeah, we're seeing that. <laughs> yeah. But in light of that, it's especially important to make the distinction. Boy, that was great, David. You made me lose my place. Oh, that's right. <laughs> the Lex Rex Institute, of course, our name is Lex Rex, which is some stuffy old Latin words meaning the law is king, because we believe that the law is our only king. You know, Joe Biden's not our king. Gavin Newsom's not our king. The law is our king. And I think there may have been some misunderstandings about that in recent days as far as national news is concerned. So we're going to try to clarify that later on. Yeah, I just want to note, I'm not sure most people consider single syllable words to be stuffy, but um, they are Latin. Well, it's Latin. I mean, it's, it's literally a dead language. So dead, but not extinct. Anyway, so sort of an overview of our episode today, we're going to give you guys a little bit of an update of some recent items in the news, followed by our last entry in our Summer of the Revolution series. We're going to give kind of a recap of where we've been, what those revolutions were like, and yeah, other stuff about that. Recap, last episode. (laughs) And and then finally, we're going to conclude with final thoughts on on the comparison between the American and the French. Yeah, thanks, David. And then our last (laughs) segment is going to be, as always, Captain Kangaroo Court. Today, we've got a special guest for Captain Kangaroo Court. Actually, it's somebody who's fairly close to me. You might even say (laughs) as close as blood. It's my sister, Vanessa Haberbush, is going to be presenting one of her fascinating tales from her legal profession. So we'll look forward to that a little bit later this episode. But first, let's get to some news items. First one's going to be, we mentioned to you guys two weeks ago in episode, I think that would have been 17 of this podcast. I believe that's right, yes. Yeah, we mentioned that we'd filed a case on behalf of some Los Alamitos parents whose kids were basically sent to an ostensibly science camp that turned out to be sort of an LGBTQ, well... Retreat center. Yeah, an LGBTQ retreat center. That was our case for some of the parents of the Los Alamitos Unified School District, parents of fifth grade girls within that district who were sent to what was ostensibly a science camp and turned out to be sort of an LGBTQ issues related retreat. And we mentioned that we'd filed that two weeks ago, Monday. And that's true. We filed with the court, but through a series of uh, elaborate hijinks, the court (laughs) didn't really understand what we filed for some reason. I guess they didn't know what a writ of mandamus was. For a while, it actually got sent over to the probate court, which for those of you who are not aware, probate court is where wills and trusts are heard. Yeah. Things about dead people. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess they must have thought that the Los Alamitos Unified School District was a dead person. Uh, hopefully that's their <laughs> assessment of their likelihood of success on this case. I don't know. I don't know why it would have been sent over there. I mean, it, I know that in England, the uh, Court of Chancery heard all matters that derive from the king's authority as opposed to parliament's authority. So it probably would have heard writs of mandate because those are orders from a higher magistrate to a lower. I don't know. Maybe they had us confused with English rules. I, I actually kind of doubt that's the explanation. But yeah, I, I think that's know. probably not true. And also, <laughs> did the Chancery deal with, with probate issues? I, I, I was not aware of that, if so. Oh, yeah. That's, okay. You never read Bleak House? Did I read Bleak House? I don't think I read Bleak House. We, we had, oh, that's all about the Court of Chancery. We had relatively little Dickens on my high school curriculum. We read one of the that's a shame. S- sort of that's slightly really a shame. more obscure ones, but I think it was Hard Times, not Bleak House. He taught them just the facts or Yeah, uh, Mr. Gradgrind, I think, was the name of the school. Yeah, that's a good one. It's, it's a really a, it's good a, one. It was a pretty good book, yeah. Anyway, that's that's a little <laughs> bit of a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> Los Alamitos now has a case number. We So you, you can look that up. We'll put our, our conformed copy up on the Give, Send, Go page, which, by the way, is a perfect opportunity to mention that Give, Send, Go page. 
This case is being funded entirely by contributions from listeners like you. This is you know, sort of the PBS promotional here. It's, it's you know, every penny that you guys don't fund comes out of my pocket. So as much as you might want me to not be able to feed myself or keep the lights on, I'd really appreciate if you helped us out. So your client's not paying a dime on that. And we've already incurred, you know, not just the time of, that the lawyers spent on it, but also the $500 filing fee. So yeah. Yeah, things are adding up. Fortunately, we didn't have to pay that more than once, even though they kept shuffling between different courts. But anyway, that's, well, that's the Los Alamitos case. Yeah. GiveSendGo.com slash LawSal. That's L-O-S-A-L. GiveSendGo.com slash LawSal. All right. A couple other items in the news. David, so California, the, mm-hmm. the Assembly has a new bill that they're proposing. Did you hear about this one? I heard a very small amount about this one, but you're going to have to do the bulk of the heavy lifting here. You know, what else is new? Yeah, it's the the delightfully named AB2098, which is a great number to be, right? Sure. I <laughs> I guess, you know, uh, if that's your sort of thing. I, I don't know that it's my sort of thing. But anyway, what this bill <laughs> does is it amends the Business and Professions Code to add a section to it regarding people in the medical profession. So licensed physicians. And, well... Uh, well, I'm not sure where to start on this, David. What do you want to say about this new requirement that it adds? Well, as I understand it, in, and in broad strokes, it would add a new you know, offense that could be considered as unprofessional conduct for medical professionals. Yeah, something that can get your license revoked, right? Yeah. So, so that's what, that's what pro- codes of professional conduct have to do with, is it's things that state licensing standards and what yeah. would get your license yanked. Right. It, it's, they're also commonly used in negligence cases because if you can show that somebody who holds a state license did not meet the requirements of that license, you're much more likely to be able to show a breach of a duty in a negligence case. So it does affect you know, lawsuits as well, but mostly a professional conduct thing. Yeah. But in any case, so it, it imposes a new condition under which that can happen, and it has to do with spreading misinformation about COVID, basically. And I think specifically the COVID vaccine. Yeah. So the way that they phrase it is false information that is contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus. Yeah, and... They also don't specify whether they mean scientific consensus contemporaneously with when the representation was made. Right. Or contemporaneously with when the suit was filed. Yeah, which can obviously affect, you know, say tomorrow, and I'm not... It changes every week. I mean, I think they have different projections on the rate of spread every day. Yeah. Well, in, you know, yeah. So say tomorrow we discover some brand new piece of information we didn't have previously. In theory, because of that ambiguity, you might at least, you know, be nervous if you said something yesterday that was in accord with what we thought at the time. But yeah, because that's not the current scientific consensus. Yeah. And, you know, that's also leaving current out current truth. It's also leading out. It's also not a consensus. Like most of this stuff, is. this is barely two and a half years old at this point. Like, yeah. there's not a consensus on most of this stuff. Well, and, you know, reading between the lines, I think you can probably assume that what people are likely to take the scientific consensus to be is a statement from a Department of Health or, you know, federally. Uh-huh. Whatever from, Fauci says. From right? the a CDC or, yeah, you know, FDA or whoever. But you know, we put in some of our demand letters for COVID-19. We've, we've put, you know, just sort of as a dramatic statement, we said, this is not a game of Gavin Says... This is not a game of so-and-so says. So I guess it is now a game of Dr. Fauci says. Possibly, you know, but it's it's dangerous to appeal to a departmental sort of statement or standard as scientific consensus because they need to collate data. They're not, you know, in many instances, they're not actually doing moment by moment research. So they're always in a process of sort of collating the research that is being done trying to summarize it, trying to come up with a, you know, right. a statement about it. Yeah, because you know. science is, all science is, is empirical data, right? which is only as reliable as the data that you've collected. They're not doing moment by moment data collection on this. So I don't know that there can possibly be a scientific consensus. It's just gonna end up being administrative guidance. And the last yeah. thing we need is more laws that are defined by whatever the administrative state says. But just to continue on about this bill, the next part of it says that the licensee may not... So, so this is the, the standard for when they spread misinformation. We know what constitutes misinformation now. Uh, so when, when do they run afoul of it? Well, it says when they deliberately disseminate with malicious intent or an intent to mislead. Uh-huh. Now, I understand what an intent to mislead would be. 
You, know, you, you knew this thing was false and you intended somebody to get a false conclusion as a result of it. Yeah. I'm not sure what malicious intent is in this context. Because gen- yeah. generally what, malicious, what malice means, like in the criminal law context, malice means intent or with reckless disregard of the consequences of your actions. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, as I mentioned, I, I only heard a little bit about this, but this part actually has me confused because I would have assumed that deliberately misleading people about medical information would already violate professional standards for doctors. You'd, That's correct. You'd but this, is, this doesn't just apply to medical information. This, this is any false information contradicted by the contemporary scientific consensus about COVID-19. So it could be stuff that's not medical at all, you know, like the rate of spread or, oh, you yeah, know, fair enough. So, social ramifications of this, you know, how many people are going to die by the end of the year. It doesn't have to necessarily do with medical treatment. That, that's fair. Yeah, that, fair point. You know, they, they outflanked my thinking on this, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that they actually considered that. They probably meant, I think specifically what they had in mind was like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, you'd think, although to be fair, I that would already really heard... be if, if those, you know, if a doctor sincerely believes ivermectin will not help you with COVID-19 and prescribes it for COVID-19, that is already something they can be disciplined for. So yeah, yeah. you're right about that, David. Yeah. It's another thing where, you know, reading between the lines, you've, and I don't care particularly what people believe about the best course of treatment or prevention for COVID is, you know, make up your own mind about that. And obviously we're not doctors. We don't care about that. Yeah. I got personal opinions about that, but yeah, that's sure. But that's really nice. They they probably don't agree with many of my clients actually, because (laughs) my, my, I, I don't bring these cases out of my personal opinion about the reliability of different medical treatments. Yeah. I believe you've got a right to decide whether or not you want medical treatment. Yeah, but which it, is apparently a controversial thing to think nowadays. It it seems to be, and at any, in this case in particular, it I, we talked a few weeks ago about the bill that would basically prevent presidents who had twice been impeached from being honored in various ways, and so this on is and a so bit forth. like that. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty clearly just trying to outlaw public expressions of a particular pseudo-political opinion. And it will likely end up getting overruled on First yeah. Amendment grounds, that this is pretty clearly a restriction on free speech. I doubt that this will stand for very long. Typically, these sorts of laws get overruled faster than you can say free speech clause. <laughs> so that's yeah, that's a thing that's going on, though. Um, yep. I, the, the, importantly, I guess one last detail, uh, conveyance of information from the licensee to a patient under the licensee's care in the form of treatment or advice is what this pertains to. So uh-huh. when they convey information in the form of treatment or advice. Now, that could still include information that is not itself a part of the treatment or advice, provided, you know, it's in the same. If, if we say, well, you should... I don't think they would ever try to prosecute someone who does this, but <laughs> if they say, you know, you should not go to Disneyland because the rate of spread is double what it was last week, and I think it would be inadvisable for you to go to Disneyland. Yeah. That is making a statement that is not a medical diagnosis or not, you know, not medical information right. about COVID-19, but it nevertheless has medical advice attached to it. That would, technically speaking, fall within the purview of this if you knew that wasn't true when you said it. Yeah. But anyway, that's that's that. Uh, David, you get a chance to check out our president's speech last night, or I guess this is coming out on Monday. Our, our president's speech last <laughs> Thursday night. Very, very little of it. I've seen, I think, a combined minute or so of it. I certainly well, then I've you're seen, in luck because I got a clip for you. I've seen more screenshots than I have uh, actual footage. Um, I'll say that. Yeah, the choice of what do you want to call it? The, the visual aesthetic there. That was an interesting decision they made, yeah, wasn't it? You know, I'll refrain from making spicier comparisons, but it was certainly a bold visual. I suppose that's one word for it. I guess, you know, Independence Hall was actually red, white, and blue, but for whatever reason, they put the red part right where the president was standing. Yeah. That was all that you could see. Yeah, <laughs> and, and then when he's flanked by military officers, you know, sort that's... of shadowed. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a, yeah, it, it was a certain look. It's odd to me too that they chose uh-huh. the It was the a red. certain look. It, it's odd to me that they chose the red to be right behind him since at least the blue would have been, you know, his party. But Yeah. Well he was wearing blue. Maybe they thought it would have clashed too much. Yeah, possibly. 
But uh, I think Lenny Riefenstahl would have been proud of that cinematography. <laughs> I was going to. All right. Well, you went there. But um, anyway. <laughs> well, that's. <laughs> so here, here's an article that I found on this. It says, not every Trump supporter threat to nation, Biden says. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember how much trouble President Trump got in when he said about illegal aliens that some of them he assumes are good people? Yeah. You know. Um, he, I mean, this is worse, a, a tier, maybe a couple tiers worse than that even, because he's talking about not just Americans, but American citizens who vote. So, like, yeah. the other political opponent. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I do know about this speech is that it was rife with references to democracy. And we'll probably... Yeah, we'll get to that. I'm going to play a clip for you. But I just want to observe in general, though, you know, how can you be so gung-ho about the concept of democracy and then whatever you think about Trump as as a candidate, you have to acknowledge he had a lot of support. So is democracy good? But nevertheless, the way like almost half of the country chooses to exercise democracy is bad. Like it's, it's, well, that was one of the things I found. This act. is sort of a minor, a minor nitpick, but it shows the, the general mindset here. You know, Biden referred repeatedly in his speech to the quote unquote MAGA Republicans wanting to overthrow the votes of 81 million Americans. Yeah. There was not an 81 million vote margin between Trump and Biden, if you accept the official numbers. Yeah. There was a 4 million vote margin between them. Yeah. You know, nobody... You know, isn't it at least plausible that some people at least believe that there was electoral fraud in this election, whether or not it took place? I mean, it might be totally bogus, but Biden doesn't seem to acknowledge the possibility anybody even believes there was fraud because he just refers to it as trying to overthrow those votes. But why would anybody want to overthrow more votes than the margin needed to win? That makes no sense. Well, people who are all in on democracy to the exclusion of Republican, in lowercase r, I don't Democrats? mean the party. <laughs> lowercase d, Democrats. <laughs> People who, who yeah. want to overemphasize, in my opinion, the democratic element of our constitution, which it does have a democratic element to it, a pretty strong one, but that's yeah. not the it was, only you element. Know, it was really important to a lot of our founding yeah. fathers that there be some democratic say. Yeah. In our system of government. And it's a and rightly. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Exactly. But the people who I think want to make that the only principle also, I think there's this sense that the outcome of a democratic process sort of just gets thought of as its own thing. It's get, it's sort of hallowed, this kind of sacred aura. And then all of the things that led up to it are just gone. So even if there was substantial opposition to the thing that won, it won. So now it's the will of the people in a you know some kind of perfect and pure sense. Right. Uh, We're a so, system that intentionally has a great deal of compromise. Yeah. It's, but so in that case, you know, it, I assume 81 is the approximate count of the total votes then. I might be getting the numbers totally wrong. But yeah, he, he's saying his total vote number. Yeah. So or at least the 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 the, um, the officially reported statistic on that. Yeah. But so anyway, you know, 81 people, 81 million people voted, not 81. That would be absurdly low turnout. Um, 81 million. Yeah, voted. that would not be great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, 1.6 voters per state, roughly. That'd be bad. <laughs> But uh, before we say any more about this, I want to make sure that we're actually playing our clip. So let me pull that up for you, David, if I can figure out how to do that. I believe I figured it out. But as I stand here tonight, equality and democracy are under assault. We do ourselves no favor to pretend otherwise. So tonight, I've come to this place where it all began to speak as plainly as I can to the nation about the threats we face, about the power we have in our own hands to meet these threats, and about the incredible future that lies in front of us, if only we choose it. A flame that lit our way through abolition, the Civil War, suffrage, the Great Depression, world wars, civil rights that sacred flame still burns the music was original now in our time as we build an america that is more prosperous free and just that is the work of my presidency a mission i believe in with my whole soul but first 
We must be honest with each other and with ourselves. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. <clears throat> not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know, because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. So anyway, that's the video. Yeah, uh, I don't believe you when you say the music is original because I'm pretty sure that... No, 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 he um, chose that. That's, sure uh, that's to fit with the decor that he had around him. I think that's Duel of the Fates or whatever that was called, right, from episode one. <laughs> no, that, that's from episode three. That's the part oh. where Palpatine uh, okay. declares the first galactic empire. All right. <laughs> Anyway. What I found so funny, though, is, you, you know, I, I did, obviously, I did add that because I thought it sort of added to the, the general tone uh -huh. that the no, president was really? trying to set. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what I found hilarious is the reason people were upset about this speech isn't because he was vilifying half the country. When it wasn't even you know, any of the, the fairly militaristic overtones against the American people, it was because he was using soldiers for a political purpose. He was politicizing the military. You're not going to comment. I was, I, it sounded like you had more to say there. <laughs> oh, no, I, I just, I found it remarkable. That was why everybody got yeah, mad. You, you, you ended there on like an upward inflection, made it sound oh. as though you had more to say. <laughs> I mean, basically what people are saying here is that, yeah, yeah, you had two soldiers sitting behind you and threatening the American people with violence. That's fine. Violence in politics is is fine. But it also means that you were using our poor military as a political talking point. How could you use the military like that? Well, <laughs> that just seems that's like a, such a strange objection to me. You yeah. know? Well, I, I want to note, too, there, there, you know, something in there of what he said strikes me. As, you know, th this may not be what will seem most obvious to a lot of people. And, you know, obviously, you know, if you're just listening to this, you can find the clips, I'm sure. And you'll you'll see what we're talking about as far as the visual goes. But. I thought it was very interesting that, you know, he made this distinction between, quote unquote, MAGA Republicans and other kinds of Republicans. And on MAGA Republicans are the ones that voted against his political opponent in the last election, though. Voted for his political opponent. I'm sorry. Yeah. Voted for his political opponent in the last election. Yeah. Well, in the, the tone of targeting your political enemies, it's inherent in giving a speech like this. You know, whether or not that's his goal, whether or not that's actually what's going on, the tone that's inherent there is something that I feel they should have been a little bit more aware of well, when writing it, this thing. Yeah, and I, I wanted to say I wasn't trying to sort of let him off the hook for that distinction. What I wanted to say is the way he drew that distinction made it sort of shadowy and almost like meaningless in an objective sense. But, you know, when there are unspecified enemies of the public among your political uh -huh. opponent, that's a that's a worrying route to take we've seen that done before we can say yeah yeah here i wanted to and and the reason why we're even talking about this you know we make a big point about how we are a legal issues podcast not a political issues podcast you know we talk about the constitution we don't talk about partisan politics a big part of that is because george washington who as we know, I'm a big fan of that guy. No, really? In his farewell address, uh, you may have read it in school, but I want to just read a section from that farewell address where he warns against the dangers of political faction. You know, you know Biden in his speech ostensibly was warning against, I guess, factionalism of a sort. Well, but not, not I would factionalism, argue that I would say a faction. A, a particular faction, which yeah. is factionalism. Exactly. So, yeah, I would argue by, by doing that, by giving a speech that's so blatantly pointing out this group of the American public, American citizens, are a danger and a threat to the very foundations of our democracy, he says, which, right. you know, we don't, it's kind of a dumb way to refer to America. But, you know, very, saying that about a group of voters, I don't know that you get much more factional than that. So that's why this was worth talking about, because yeah. it relates directly to our purpose of constitutional education. So here's the excerpt from George Washington's farewell address, 
These are the words with which he left the nation when he departed forever from public life. One of the first times in history anybody had done that. Usually when you were in power, you stayed in power. You didn't just go back to your farm and sit under your vine and fig tree. You know, that's not what you generally did when you were in a position of power. So the words that he left us with sort of have a unique significance and prominence in the American way of life. So I'm going to read them right now. This spirit of, of political parties, unfortunately, is inseparable from our nature, having its root in the strongest passions of the human mind. And that, that's actually, you know, even there he's sort of anticipating the idea of tribalism, you know, which is big in psychology now. They were very aware of that, even at the time. Yeah. It exists under different shapes in all governments, more or less stifled, controlled, or repressed. But in those of the popular form, it is seen in its greatest rankness and it is truly their worst enemy. The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetuated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. But this leads at length to a more formal and permanent despotism. The disorders and miseries which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual. Yep. And sooner or later, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able and more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation and the ruin of public liberty. The spirit of party agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, and it finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passions. That sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? Yep, across multiple sort of axes um, as well. Oh, right, that's yeah. what I mean. It's, these are the dangers we're facing right now. You know, it's, we don't want to sound like those people who say that divisiveness in Washington is bad, people shouldn't disagree, strong opinions are inherently bad. Strong opinions are good. Yeah. We should have difference of opinion. We should have those opinions fought out on the floor of the House and Senate, where they ought to be fought out. They should be fought out in public too, you know, in the in the taverns and even at work for that yeah. matter. You know, there's nothing wrong with voicing our opinions. That's very different from political factionalism. Yeah. Well, and the cries for a pure kind of democracy, what the people want should rule. We, you're getting rid of the element of the system that prevents that from just being massive swings back and forth that ruin everything basically you know it's the difference that was between, my next point yeah it's the yeah, difference between a boxing match where there are rules in a set area and a way of conducting it from a street fight where someone could yeah. die and basically a republic has those things is the rule of law yeah. That's, that's what defines a republic is the rule of law yeah. and you know I, I didn't play that section but it's it's striking so President Biden in that speech will move very quickly and easily between respect for our constitutional order, upholding the rule of law, and then will align very quickly to respecting the will of the people. Yeah. Almost as if the idea of upholding the law, respecting the rule of law, is the same thing as respecting the will of the people. Yeah. That is not true. No. Both of those things are very important for a republic to do. If you have a republic that's not representative, it's not a republic. Right. But that is a different thing entirely from upholding the rule of law. Yeah. Well, and again, when you're painting more or less, well, you know, technically he didn't paint the entire Republican Party the same way. But when you're at least some of them he assumes are good people. And when you're at least heavily implying that a significant portion of one of the two major parties in the country. No, he said a significant portion. (laughs) Uh, Did he? All right. So anyway, fine. Explicitly saying then. Yeah. How does that comport with, uh, you know, a respect for democracy? You're saying that a huge portion of the democracy is majority rule, David. Well, if if they were if they were in the minority, which, by the way, the very point in contest, the point that the MAGA Republicans don't believe was that they were in the minority. I I don't understand why this administration refuses to acknowledge the possibility someone thinks that. But but anyway, if they're in the minority, they're supposed to sit down and shut up. That's the point of the speech. Well, but, that's his idea of democracy, I guess. And, you know, you think about if you apply that principle consistently, I think everyone would notice that there are huge, pro- you know, take the clock back 200 years, you'd probably get 
a majority of the of the American voting public agreeing to all kinds of things that most people nowadays would be horrified by, you know? Yeah. Like, why is it just a sort of magic moment where it becomes right if at any given moment more than half of the people agree on it? You know, I think it's important. Oh, and the you know, it's important to have the democratic elements because that's an excellent way of avoiding the rights of people being trampled on because most people tend to favor their yeah. own rights. They'll but, voice their own rights. But, you give them a voice, they'll yeah. make to make sure their rights have some voice. But yeah. it's not a magic formula. It doesn't guarantee that the results are correct and just and right. Well, and important to our purposes, the will of the people is not the only means whereby we select a, a chief executive. You know, we've yeah. talked about the electoral college before. The popular vote makes no difference at all whatsoever. Right. You know, that, that's not how we pick a president in the United States. It's not the way that we should pick a president in the United States because there's more than one political entity being represented. There's the people yeah. individually, and there's also their states. Both of those have a voice in government. Both of them should have a voice in government. And, and that's the mistake that he makes by eliding between rule of law and the will of the people. You yeah. know, we have the Electoral College. Obviously, that's the most obvious and immediate thing that is not just raw will of the people that's that's enshrined in our legal order. But, you know, we also have things like if the vote turnout in a state is legitimately disputed, is legitimately the subject of dispute, there's a reason the Constitution reserves the power to the state legislators to be able to select electors via whatever means they see fit. Yeah. You know, it makes sense. If, if you can't determine how a state voted, you can't just say, well, we're not going to let that state vote in this election. We let their appointed representatives apportion those electors. And that's what the Constitution says. Yeah. In many cases, that's what Donald Trump and his attorneys were pushing for the legislators to do, rightly or wrongly. Right. You, you may totally disagree with what they were doing there. But what they were doing, at least in that instance, was absolutely respect for the rule of law, because that's what our law requires and calls for. But you know, we got to move on from that. And the reason why we mention any of this is because it relates directly to what we're talking about with the French and American revolutions. Well, why is that? Well, that distinction between the will of the people and the rule of law, I would say, is utterly absent yeah. from both of the French constitutions we read. And it did inevitably result in exactly what General Washington predicted, what President yeah. Washington predicted, which is a strong man. Yeah. In the person of Napoleon. People got, now, we're not saying yeah. that Joe Biden's Napoleon. <laughs> I, I, he's, you know, how, do, how does Washington describe the person that will come to power? It's an individual, uh, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors. I guess Biden might be more fortunate, but yeah. I, I don't think Washington's describing him. Yeah, no, it's, you know, you may love Joe Biden. I think most people will agree it's a little difficult to imagine him, you know, like in, you know, the famous paint, equestrian painting of Napoleon, you of know, the David. On, the, <laughs> on the back of a rearing horse, you know, waving his sword, <laughs> directing his troops. Um, you know, that, that's that's hard to imagine, I think, from, you know, when we stopped people. having the president command the troops in the United States, you know, when we stopped doing that uh, in person. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, I don't know. I can't. Th Take a guess. <sighs> Honestly, I, Washington may have been the last, for all I know. Because the next war was, next war on our soil. War of 1812. War of 1812. Yeah. Madison. Now, Madison was, like I think, like <laughs> five foot two. Uh, he'd had health uh, yeah. issues his entire life. He was a little bit of a fancy boy. Like, you know, yeah. he, he was very, very spoiled, very, very pampered. And part, part, of the reason, part of the reason that Madison rose to the prominence that he did and managed to be as influential as he was was the company that he kept, which was almost sort of a historical accident of the fact that he had very poor health young in life because William and Mary was, between William and Mary and Princeton, William and Mary was sort of the more reputable school at the time. It's where he would have gone had William and Mary not been located in the lowlands which is very bad for your health. You know, it's kind of humid, swampy. Yeah. You know, that's that, that swamp air, not great for you. So he ends up going to Princeton instead, where he meets John Witherspoon, the great political thinker, pastor, ends up being very influential in James Madison's ideas of religious tolerance, a lot of other ideas that he learns there. And really, as we, you know, he's sort of the architect of separation of powers. So yeah, anyway, very sickly, last guy that commands the military, I guess, it sort of doesn't really inspire the troops, makes them all kind of more afraid of the enemy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we, we figure, let's not do that anymore. You know, we're not, we're not electing military leaders here. We're electing people who have been politicians their whole lives. I'm not sure we ought to have them command the troops. But anyway, fun fact. 
No. Way too long for a fun fact. Sorry about that. Okay, so we've got to do a really brief summary of the French and American revolutions. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this, this could this be... This is a freeform episode, guys. This could be an interesting episode. <laughs> um, anyway, so probably need to do just a real crash course at this point in in the in the uh, American and French revolutions because we're running late. But basically, the, the overarching question that we've been trying to address obliquely at times in this series is, why do people compare the two? And is that comparison really justified? And well, we're comparing the two, right? Well, or I guess we're contrasting the we're, two. We're mostly contrasting. We've done some comparison. That's the key difference. And anyway, to, to pay, you know, do accord to the comparison there are a few sort of similar things right both you know legitimately i think were provoked in in some regard dramatic political action was probably necessary both for france and for the u.s the u.s talked about why that was the case you know the rights that were supposed to belong to the colonists as citizens of the british crown were being routinely denied to them it was less that issue in france than just the French system being in desperate need of reform. You know, like certain high official positions being restricted only to the upper nobility, lots of sort of confusion and inefficiencies in the sort of internal economic regulations that were going it on. It was a mess. Yeah. It was really a mess. It needed it, it fixing. Need, it did need reform. Yeah, it needed yeah. fixing. And for a while, the, the program really was to try to fix it. They started by saying, okay, the king is probably necessary for our system, but we want sort of more definite understanding of the king's role like they have in Britain, you know, a constitutional monarchy. That was sort of the original aim. And yeah. things just sort of very so where did quickly, it go wrong? Very quickly spiraled yeah, beyond that. Uh, where, at what point did it, did it depart from? Because obviously, you know, early on, what inspired the French revolutionaries to even have a revolution was the fact that they'd seen America do it yeah. and that it worked. Yeah. So where did it go wrong? Well, give us the, this is an autopsy on the French revolution. You know, where did it go wrong? I think probably the key point is when the crowds in Paris began to really directly influence the policy of the emerging National Assembly, basically. Yeah, yeah I, I would argue as soon, so after the American Revolution took place, I think right away, the rest of the world looked at that and the emphasis obviously became upon popular sovereignty, yeah. uh, will of the people, which makes sense because it was the great experiment in that, right? I mean, that's that's the striking aspect. If you want to identify the unique aspect about America in the late 18th century, it's that. It's that we have self-government because yep. most of the world does not have that. Right. I think what the French did was they looked at that and they took out everything else that was undergirding it, that was holding up the, the superstructure that held up that yeah. you know, on the very, very top, the, those sort of superficial elements of, of popular sovereignty. I don't mean superficial in the sense of unimportant. I mean... Just on the, you know... Really yeah, on the surface. Apparent, yeah, surface elements. And, yeah. you know, it's worth noting, too, Paris itself basically dictated policy throughout a lot of the revolution, but the population of Paris was not even close to a majority of the French population. It was just the closest, the people most able to intimidate people, and the loudest. Because there was no system in place to allow for representation of other communities. Yeah, and I think that's actually... And that's, that's what always... You have a direct democracy, a plain, unmodified democracy without legal superstructure to make sure that the will of the people is somehow mediated. Yeah. What you get is not majority rule. You get acquiescence to the loudest voice. Yeah, and I... Which eventually is always going to clamor for a dictator. And, you know, on a, on a sort of less philosophical level, but I think almost as important historically... I think the fact that the U.S. was a union of previously existing political units actually played yes. a huge role there. You don't have that yeah. in France. You have sort of these vague memories of feudal divisions between different parts of France. You know, the, the Duke of Normandy or the Duke of, you know, Poitou or whatever. But those distinctions basically didn't have any meaning anymore. And no one had experience really with kind of local government institutions that weren't just sort of the, the province of the nobles, basically. The rule of law is a practiced skill. Yeah. And Anglo society had a great deal of experience and practice in it. Yeah. France, they had their share of experience as well. 
Most of it was going to be quite a bit older, not necessarily in living memory, and not as widely dispersed. Yeah. Which made it more difficult for them from the get-go. But I, I don't think that's their point of failure. I think their point of failure is that they refused to regard with any kind of reverence or respect those legal orders and structures that they did have previously. Yeah. You know, and as we've mentioned, a lot of them needed reform. Like, you know, a lot of them were... But reform does not mean abolition. Exactly. You build on what you have. And that's Edmund Burke's point in yeah. Reflections on the Revolution in France. We now sell copies of that, or rather we give them out for a donation of, I think, like $30 for that. It's a pretty big book. Yeah. But you know, that's, he makes it so eloquently that yeah. you have to build on what you already have. It has to be grounded in your traditions and cultures, or it's just not going to last. Yeah. You know, we, we haven't talked about this enough, but republics, self-government is a very fragile thing. Yeah. They don't last long. No, in a, it's you have to be very careful if you want to create self-government that lasts for any period of time. You know, we're the second longest lived one in history. Yeah. After the Roman Republic, which collapsed into what? Autocracy. Yeah, it's where we get our word dictator yeah. is what they collapsed into because that was actually a title of a guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, if they voted emergency powers, they say you're dictator now. That's where we get that word. Right. That's what Rome turned into. Yeah. And, you know, we've had more recent experience, you know, the, the concept of regime change as a foreign policy goal. You know, whether you think that's good or bad in and of itself, that's a political opinion. We won't go into it, but it's pretty evident to see it is not easy to make it work when you want to impose a, a very different system of government on people who haven't used it before. And, right. you know, that obviously happened to the extreme in France. In, in the United States, yeah. we, we based our political divisions on pre-existing political divisions and skills that were already in play. You know, people were used to running their colonial governments. Yep. They were used to being involved in church governance because remember, America's comprised largely of the Protestants of Protestantism, to quote Edmund <laughs> Burke on that. You know, they had the Church of England over in England, which was still controlled by the state. People that didn't like that and wanted to run their own churches all came over here and started immediately dividing into more churches, which they would then run. So <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, you've got, you've got a great deal of experience working in various kinds of government yeah. in America. Yeah, a, a very administratively skilled population for various reasons. And Nation of clerks. I guess that was England, though, as Napoleon called it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in comparison, he was right there, too. Um, yeah. And, yeah, in, you know, what Washington alluded to in that passage you read, this sort of back and forth swing of factions, that defines the French Revolution, basically. Yeah, I think our risk talking here is that we're going to suggest that this was inevitable in France because of the, the culture and so, cultural and social differences there. Right. That's not the case. Yeah. They could easily have protected against this stuff. It would have taken some work. It would have been diff. I, should, I said easily, not easily. They could have protected against it. It would have taken some work. Yeah. There were people from America who were willing to help them, who offered help, uh, who were giving counsel on the whole thing. It didn't go that route. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons why things took the turns that they did. Much more moderate factions did exist. They were often intimidated and sometimes they had just their heads turned by various developments it didn't help that you know france was threatened with war from basically every other european power from very early on in the stage it's usually not yeah, it's, i mean we had the advantage of being far away from everybody else david yeah. you're attributing too much to just the circumstances of where they were but i mean part of it was america decided we were going to be have independence declare independence because it was a practical achievability yeah no no what i was going to say though is there you know there were there were conditions that made things worse than they could have been. But yeah. ultimately, I think the, the failure of the French Revolution is down to the failure to appreciate that distinction between a system that accounts Popular for will. the will of the people, yeah. but doesn't just bow to it, especially when it's virtually impossible to get an unmitigated sense of what the will of the people is. It's going to be the loudest voice for practical purposes. Oh, you're saying there was electoral fraud, David? No, I'm saying there were Paris mobs <laughs> that showed up and, you know, threatened Good, because you can't say that or they're going to yeah. come and take you away now. But, and they're... again, as Washington predicted, people tired of living this way, tired of, you know, being on top of the world one day and fearing for their lives the next because of, you know, changes in the political tide, opted for a government that was took no account in a, a mechanical sense of the will of the people. One-man government yeah. is the opposite of that. 
And yeah, and, and that, so you have a question here of how Napoleon's France differs from that of the revolutionaries. Is that pretty much all you, just that one guy is pretty much the opposite of hearing from all the guys? <laughs> uh, on one level, yes. You know, the, so the, the, the sort of things that are associated most strongly with the French revolutionary movement, uh, movement you know, democracy, all, all this stuff, that goes out the Liberty, window. Liberty, equality, Napoleon. fraternity, or death? Yeah, basically. I will say, there, but there is more continuity than I think a lot of people are willing to acknowledge in the Napoleonic era versus the revolutionary era. One of them, I think, is actually a positive achievement which is, you know, the, it abolished the distinction before the law of like nobles and non-nobles and clergy and non-clergy. Sure. I think that's yeah. one of the few things you can point to and say unambiguously that was a good thing that came. But, yeah. you know, you still... Even there, though, eradicating something like that overnight yeah. has a lot of unintended consequences. It, it you know, certainly it, does. It's, yeah, there's a big difference between saying something is a laudable goal and then saying their means of accomplishing it was good because the mere fact that oh, something yeah. is... Some, no. A thing that you want to achieve doesn't mean that you ought to do it overnight. Yeah. You know, that can be very dangerous. It, it, the, the it's like it, if we wanted to eliminate like welfare entitlements in America right now. It'd be disastrous to do it overnight. Yeah. That's what Cromwell's protectorate tried to do. Well, actually, you know, Cromwell didn't want to do that. But Parliament did that. <laughs> uh, disastrous effects. You don't want immediate changes like that. But yeah. anyway, we got we to gotta conclude this subject. Last question. Is there any basis to the comparison between America and France? Yeah. And, you know, we've alluded to this. A very tenuous yes, I think, is the the answer there. And yeah, popular sovereignty mattered in both. Yeah, what they forgot was that you can't have popular sovereignty without a very strong legal superstructure behind it. Yeah, because popular sovereignty and the rule of law are two very different and very often opposed concepts. Yeah, and I if think if you can get a system that incorporates both, you got a good system. Exactly, and I think it's you know to the great detriment of the way we teach not only the history, but also general sort of civics and in political philosophy nowadays, that we've basically allowed that note to drown out all the others. I think mostly- And that was why I wanted to play the Biden yeah. clip. Yeah. Because that's that, that idea could not have been more apparent and stressed more resoundingly than it was in his speech. Yeah. And that to me was the most troubling aspect of it. Yeah. So anyway, all that to say, don't let someone tell you that the French were doing the same thing or just took it a little too far or anything like that. They were very different. Ideas. They don't even eat pancakes there. They eat crepes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which uh, to quote a very bad movie of just really, really thin pancakes. Oh, so they are pancakes. <laughs> sort of. Well, the difference between our constitutional orders is far greater than the difference between crepes and pancakes. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> all right, folks, gather around. It's time once again for everyone's favorite section of this podcast. So gather around, everybody. We're going to be introducing yet again this very special compilation of the most ridiculous absurdities in American jurisprudence and really jurisprudence across the world throughout history since we had something from Iceland last time. Uh -huh. Captain Kangaroo Court. Boy, that was, I talked kind of fast there, didn't I? Yeah. You outpaced the music, but that's all right. So, I, I, I have one for us, and it, it involves my, my sister, if we want to bring her in now. So hi, Vanessa. Welcome to the show. This is your first time appearing here. Uh, Vanessa's my sister, so I've known her my entire life, and she is uh -huh. also an attorney. She works with the Lex Rex Institute, and she also works with Haber Bush LLP, doing primarily debtor-creditor relations with Haber Bush LLP. Uh, she, she's a great lawyer, so we're happy to have her. Uh, and I, I, Vanessa, I understand that you've got an entry for Captain Kangaroo Court. I do, and thank you for having me. It's actually something that came up in the last couple weeks that I have found probably more entertaining than I should, given that I'm a lawyer. Yeah, and well, things lawyers find entertaining tend to be... Well, we'll see, well, we'll see. Beyond dull for the rest of the public, but... Yes, we'll, we'll see. I call it the soap opera that I get to watch from the sidelines. So I'm a bankruptcy attorney primarily, and this is one of my bankruptcy cases. I represent a creditor in a Chapter 11. I'll give you a little bit of background of what... That's reorganization that. for those right, who so don't know. Right, it's reorganization. The debtor is an entity. They're the people that filed for bankruptcy. They are trying to sell property in their bankruptcy. And in Chapter 11, the debtor stays in charge. So they filed a motion to sell. So it basically it means debtor sells their own stuff to pay off creditors, right? Correct. So they okay. get to pick 
what they do in terms of operations. So they go to the court and say, we want to sell this property to what I will call ABC Corporation. Well, ABC Corporation is controlled by the same people as the debtor. Almost exclusively, exactly the same people. Right, so, is, so the debtor, the person who's filing for bankruptcy, they're, they're a company, right? They're a company. And the same people that run that company run the one that's trying to buy all the assets? That's correct. Mm-hmm. So sort of a shell. It's, it's sort of a sham transaction there. Not necessarily, but that is a possibility. So that's why the bankruptcy code says if yeah, you're you going never to want to be too hasty about saying that. So. <laughs> right. So, so, so you, you, you tell the court, you say, OK, this, we're going to tell the court everything, all the connections will be all in the up and up so that, you know, OK, if there's a sham, you're, you're telling everybody. So they did everything right. They told everybody this and the court approved it and said, yep, you can sell it to these people for four point seven million or something like that. And mm-hmm. a couple weeks later, the sales not closing and the secured creditors not happy. And goes. What, what are they selling here? A piece of real property. Okay, so commercial real property. It's. I believe it's actually a dwelling that was torn down and kind of in a state of disrepair. Actually. Well, you, you know okay. you're in California yeah. when the dwelling that's torn down and instead of disrepair has gone for four million. But go on. Yeah. <laughs> so. They're not selling it. The secured creditor goes to court and says, I want a deadline for them to sell this property or I want a trustee appointed, which means that the debtor would no longer stay in control. Yeah. Judge says, okay, that makes sense. I'll agree to that. Deadline comes and goes, supposedly no sale, trustees appointed. About three days later, we see a motion from the trustee saying something really, really weird happened and I don't know what to do about it and I need someone to tell me what happened. So he, the motion. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Something weird's happening. Help me out, court, right? <laughs> yes. Basically, yeah. And so you go, okay, so what's this weird thing that's happened? Well, he went. <laughs> well, to, trustee, person who's been put in charge of being responsible for the safe administration of these assets. Yes. Well, <laughs> tell us what's happened. <laughs> tell us what's happened. So he goes to the bank accounts of the debtor and says, give me all the money. And they're like, okay, here's the money. $3,000. Well, where's mm. the deposit for the sale of this property that supposedly was supposed to go through, which was about $142,000. And they go, we don't have that. That's in the escrow. So, okay, okay I'll go to escrow. Fair escrow, enough. Escrow goes, I don't have the money. They closed the sale outside of escrow. And then he goes, what do you mean you closed the sale? Did he ever sale? have the money? Well, hold on. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going. It gets better. So he's like, I don't understand. You closed outside of escrow. So he contacts the debtor saying, what do you mean you con- you closed outside of escrow? They don't respond at all. So he files this motion saying, I don't know what to do. I checked and apparently there's a deed recorded transferring the property from the debtor to this other person. And I don't have any money to show for it from anyone, from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Or so please they help just, me. The debtor went totally around the escrow company and just kind of sold it. Supposedly. So the, the trustee says, please tell me what happened. That's the what it appears then, at this point, at least. Sorry. That's correct. So the debtor says, no, no, no. Everything was fine because I had to close so quickly. I'm going, I, I went outside of escrow. So we, we just did it outside of escrow to make sure we could get the deadlines because escrow told me it would take two days and it was too slow. So we just, we just mm. did it this way. Um, so, so slow. Took, yeah. So we took the money out of escrow and, and it's all fine. The money's in the debtor in possession accounts. I don't know why you don't have it. Here's a wire transfer showing all the money. So couple hours later, trustee files a statement saying, I got everything the debtor said. I called the bank where this wire transfer came from, and they don't have a record of this person. They don't have a record of this wire, and this looks like different font than they use. <laughs> okay. It, they and send a doctored wire transfer statement? That's what it appeared to be. All right. Um, that's <laughs> that's okay. what it appeared to be. Um, and, like, and I contacted the bank again, and there's no money, and I don't know where it is, and I still don't have money. So, Why are they lying about selling the property? That makes no sense. It makes no sense. So they go to court. The judge says, okay, I need an accounting by tomorrow at five o'clock from the debtor. And I need the trustee to have all of this money. Or I'm going to hold you, the person that's been signing all these declarations, in contempt. The one who's transferring the money, right? The one that's supposedly one that's paying someone to, or yeah. I'm sorry, supposedly, yeah, paying, paying someone for the property. He's the guy that's if you will, the puppeteer behind the two corporations. So okay. he's the man pulling the man the behind the curtain. Yeah. 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 Pay no attention to him, but I'm going to fine you a thousand dollars a day until you give me the accounting or the money. And I'm going to throw you in jail until you do it. And we're going to talk that's, about that. So, so that's debtor's prisons still exist then <laughs> because that is a debtor's prison. At it's that point. interesting because the bankruptcy court specifically said, I do not have authority to hold you on a criminal, like as a punitive that's correct. measure. Yeah. 
I can only hold you to force you to do things. Yeah, so that's I can a debtor's hold- prison. Force you to pay a debt. That's a debtor's prison. Yeah. yeah. So. Huh, I so, didn't, that's, so you learned something new on the podcast. Debtor's prisons are still around. Or actually, but to finish the story, are debtor's prisons still around? Well, I don't actually know if this guy's in jail, but I do know that Wait, five so o'clock... So we don't get an answer to that one, but they're at least theoretically still around. Theoretically. Yeah. People have gotten thrown in jail for things like this. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, you'd, I mean, you'd never pay off. If it's compounding $1,000 a day, you're going to be there forever. It's not just jail. That's prison no. at that point. But, yeah. So, uh, so five o'clock comes and goes. Nothing from the debtor. Next day, we get another declaration from the trustee. Apparently, the debtor has been sending the debtor, meaning we'll call him the puppeteer. We'll call him Mr. X. Mr. X has been giving all sorts of declarations saying that everything he said before was wrong. Really, this is what happened. The money is here. And this is all still on the up and up. The trustee goes, I've contacted all of the banks. He tells me where this money is. I've looked at the bank statements where the money is. Because there's bank statements to show there's money there. There's no money anywhere. So, well, there's fake bank statements. That there's, there's fake bank statements, but no actual money, no actual accounting, no anything. So the judge mm. issues an order saying, we're undoing all of this transaction. We're going to go back to where we were. And I didn't go to this hearing, but supposedly there was an evidentiary hearing where the judge was going to decide what to do with this guy. And as a result of the hearing, the judge issued one of the strangest orders I've ever seen in my entire life. So he continued everything saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to revisit this later. And Mr. X, you're going to be put, you know, you have to give testimony. And what he said is they have to give briefing with the trustee and Mr. X has Mr. X waived his ability to assert his fifth amendment privilege to refuse to testify at the hearing what? on this order to show cause by previously filing declarations containing testimony with respect to the matters that are at issue in connection with this order to show cause. Oh my gosh. They want briefing on that issue? And that's on, a constitutional issue. That's a yeah, constitutional issue. That's a constitutional issue on whether he That's can actually speak. an interesting issue. Very interesting and it gets better. You know, you can't argue that by by filing those declarations in the first place you were compelled to give testimony against yourself because you're not supposed to be putting evidence of criminal activity in those. <laughs> that's correct. So and he testified as to what he was doing and kept changing it. So has he waived it? So it's actually a really interesting constitutional issue. Yeah, that's and then I, I'm inclined guy gee, but can you waive your I don't know. I have to think about that one. Wait, I don't. I actually don't know the answer. But then the judge was even more interesting. He said, to the extent Mr. X's Fifth Amendment privilege has not been waived, so if he can assert it, mm-hmm. may the court apply an adverse interest inference? Excuse me. If Mr. X invokes the privilege, so can he assume that he is now criminally liable for something by invoking his Fifth Amendment? Uh, the answer to that one is obviously no. Yeah, that one's way easier I, to answer constitutionally. That's what the Fifth Amendment means, is that right. you cannot infer from your silence. So I was wondering, because I'm wondering why this is even in the order, because I look at that, I'm like, you could never make that inference. No. Yeah. But why would the judge think you can? So <sighs> I find it fascinating. Yeah, that's, that's bizarre. That is very strange. I mean, this might be kangaroo litigants more than kangaroo court. I would say... Uh, although that, yeah. that last one is sort of a... I don't know why and, a judge would ever want briefing on whether or not... And to be fair... Invoking your Fifth Amendment right allows an inference of guilt. That, but, that, same, right. that same idea is, you know, some of the the unused things I had for hot takes revolve around exactly that issue. A lot of completely uneducated layman on Twitter saying the same thing. Interesting to hear a judge saying it. Yeah, that's, that, that actually, they're getting that. So this brings us full circle. They're getting that from the way that the rules of evidence work under the French system. <laughs> it all comes well, back to and English. Actually, everybody in the world but us yeah. does it that way. It's, that's one of the you know, unique protections you have in America is that you do not have to testify and incriminate yourself. Right. It's interesting because it's a bankruptcy court. And I mean, you have bankruptcy fraud. That's a, whenever you sign anything in bankruptcy court, there's a thing saying bankruptcy fraud's real, you know, don't commit fraud. I did not commit fraud. Right, don't commit fraud doing this. But you don't see it in bankruptcy court that often. And so for this particular issue to be an issue, there's gonna be briefing on it in the next couple weeks. So by bankruptcy lawyers, probably, unless Mr. X got a criminal lawyer, which he, he was actually advised at the last hearing, get a lawyer. You better show up represented yeah, he, at the Yeah, he hearing. really should. And he should get a good constitutional lawyer if you want to hand out our card. You probably <laughs> well, can't no, do that. That's, no, that's I, a real ethical problem if you I do represent, it. I <laughs> represent, well, you have to remember, I represent a creditor of this guy. Yeah. 
Right. Who, well, it's a real ethical issue if you do that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he listens to our podcast, though. If he does, he still really can't hire me because no. I've got a direct conflict on this. Yeah. But. <laughs> no. And honestly, I don't know if you want to touch this guy with a 10-foot pole. It seems like he constantly is changing his testimony. No, we'll, we'll help scoundrels all the time. You know, it's like the H.L. <laughs> Mencken quotation. It's, it, the problem with defending rights is you spend most of your time defending scoundrels because scoundrels are the first people whose rights are taken away. Oh, no, I agree with you. And I think from a constitutional perspective, that's absolutely correct. I get a little bit nervous when you're getting documents that look completely legitimate from a client that you later find out are forgeries. And they yeah, keep I don't doing like it, it when my clients lie to me. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I can't help you if you lie to me. Exactly. That's, tell me the truth. I will help you if you tell me the truth. I can't help right. you if I don't know what's going on. Well, and the debtor's lawyer is trying to get out of this case. They filed a motion to withdraw about five days before all of this madness happened. And mm-hmm. the judge will not let them out of the case. So for those of you who don't know, ship. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, you cannot stop representing an entity without court approval unless new lawyers are hired. The debtor didn't hire new lawyers. And the judge says, you know, I think this case will go a lot better if you keep representing. You the have debtor. to keep doing it. Yeah. So that that's the other exception to the 13th Amendment. They don't mention, you know, obviously slavery is abolished except in prisons uh, and for uh, lawyers who have agreed to represent somebody in the past. So, yes, that, yes. that's alive and well. And, which is why we're very careful about the cases that we take and exactly what our our, our fee agreement says because a lot of times you can't get out once you've taken something on. All right, folks, that's all for today. Hopefully you've learned a lot about the exciting and fascinating world that is the kangaroo court of, of America and other places, <laughs> like everywhere. So that's, so that's Captain Kangaroo Court uh, and Captain Kangaroo litigants, too. So, you know, kids, go back to playing baseball and, I don't know, <laughs> go into science camps and whatever else kids are doing these days. That's all for Captain Kangaroo Court. All right, and that will also do it for this episode of the podcast. So thank you for listening, and we hope you'll listen again. Yeah.